So today we're going to be preaching through Psalm 137, which is probably a favorite of yours. Um, How many of you listen to the podcast or watch it on YouTube? I won't be offended. So we have, I'm a little offended. Um, So, I mean, if you, a few weeks back on the podcast, we posed a question. And the question was, would you rather have us preach through um, a, a kind of a familiar favorite psalm, like Psalm 23, or would you rather have us preach through something obscure? And since only seven of you listen to the podcast, Breton, being one out of seven, put in his two cents. And I think he was trying to be snarky, but he said, let's preach on Psalm 137. And um, Psalm 137 is probably a, 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 a psalm you've never heard a sermon on. And probably will never happen again. It actually contains what might be considered one of the most difficult verses in the Psalms, if not the most difficult verse in the Psalms, which is, Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. So, Breton, thank you for suggesting Psalm 137. So, this verse is rather shocking. Matter of fact, this verse, the, uh, verse 9 in Psalm 137, this is the type of verse that critics love to grab onto, and then they use this as cannon fodder against the Bible and against Christianity. And so, the kind of the, the mental gymnastics goes something like this If God is love, and if Jesus says to love your enemies, If God sent his son for his enemies, that we might be forgiven. And if the Bible is the God-breathed, inspired words of our creator, then why would God include a verse that says, Blessed be the one who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. So Psalm 137 is classified by scholars as either a psalm of lament, which is a psalm of mourning, or an imprecatory psalm. And an imprecatory psalm is basically um, a psalm or a passage of scripture that pleads with God to bring judgment upon someone or to punish their enemies. And there's lots of imprecatory psalms and imprecatory paragraphs in the psalms, And they can be quite difficult to receive as believers. And and I said that very specifically in a very specific way, that these verses can be difficult to receive. And I want to say that again because it's important. These verses can be difficult to receive. What we like to say in pop culture Christianity is that these verses are hard to understand. Are they hard to understand? No, they're not hard to understand. It's really straightforward. Blessed be he who takes your little one and dashes them against the rocks. That is not complicated to understand, but it is difficult to what? To receive. You see, often I think what I have observed over whatever it is, I guess almost 20 years of ministry, is that in the Bible, the things that we say are difficult things, they're actually not difficult to understand. We just don't want to acknowledge that they're true because of the implications for their reality. So, for example, the doctrine of adoption, the scriptures clearly say that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's not difficult to understand. 
it's difficult to receive. And there's a difference between those two things. And so often, because we don't want to receive it, we say, well, that's just a really complicated, it's not complicated, it's super straightforward. We just don't like the implications of it, or we may not like the implications of it. So we can say that we don't know how to interpret these verses, but that's simply untrue. We can interpret them easily enough. We just don't like what they say because of the implications they have for our friends, our family members, our coworkers, our neighbors, and that sort of thing. So Psalm 37 is one of those psalms. It's not difficult to understand, but it may be difficult to receive. So let's read Psalm 137 in its entirety, and then we'll unpack it. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres or our harps. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, the day of Jerusalem referring to the siege when Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonians, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Again, thank you, Breton. First, I want to try to explain this psalm, and then we want to look at some kind of big practical ideas. So this psalm is most likely written during what is called the exile. And so after rescuing Abraham's descendants out of the land of Egypt, God created them to be a nation. He brought them into the land of Canaan for his inheritance. And in the Old Testament, this is called the promised land, which basically is like saying God's country. And God would reign as their king in this promised land, and they would be his people. But if they were going to stay in God's country— then they needed to live by God's laws. And so God makes it clear in what is called the Mosaic Covenant that if they violated his constitution, so to say, then they would be vomited out of the promised land. And so this is God is a parent, and he's laying down the law with an of-age child, essentially saying the final straw is you get kicked out of the house. And we unpacked a lot of this when we went through Leviticus. And so sure enough, it gets to that point because sin is pervasive and sin is destructive. And the scriptures say that when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. And so after years of disobedience and after years of refusing to turn away from sin and to return to God, that is to repent, the nation of Israel splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And eventually, first the northern kingdom falls, and then the southern kingdom falls 
first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians as judgment. Just like God said would happen. If you don't forsake your wicked ways, if you don't forsake your idols, if you don't forsake all of these false gods, I'm going to vomit you out of the land. If you sacrifice your children to the, to, the, to the various Canaanite gods, if you slaughter your kids in order because you want to be, you want to be blessed and you want to receive a good harvest, if you go and you have all kinds of promiscuity as your form of cultic worship and you worship the god of pleasure, then guess what? I'm going to kick you out of the land just like I kicked the Canaanites out of the land before you. And so when the Babylonians come, they ransack Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Zion, is the capital of the southern kingdom. And they committed terrible atrocities. The Babylonians were ruthless warriors. They were terrible people. Um, I, one thing I remember reading is that they would, they would put fish hooks through the cheeks of the people that they exiled, and that was how they would chain gang them with fish hooks in their, in their face, and they would march them to Babylon for exile. Now, it wasn't uncommon in the ancient Near East to slaughter man, woman, and child. There was no Geneva Convention. There were no war crimes back then. They would rip babies from their mother's arms only to throw them from the ramparts, to throw them against nearby rocks, bricks, Women were raped while the men were forced to watch. People were dismembered, tortured. Every vile practice imaginable was committed because your enemy was viewed as subhuman. And so you could do whatever you want. Now, while all this was happening, the Babylonians are ransacking Jerusalem and they're committing all of these atrocious acts, which some of you are upset that I'm even talking about because that's how distanced our hearts are from these realities, right? While that's happening, the Israelites' cousins show up and you think, great. Like, what better, what a better thing do you need right now than for your cousins to show up and maybe they can muster the troops, and they can help bail you out. So while you're fighting from within the city and Babylon is fighting from outside, your cousins can show up and they can flank, and this could be your turning point. But that's not what happens. The distant cousins of the Israelites show up. They're called the Edomites, the descendants of Esau from the book of Genesis. And they didn't come to help their relatives, but they came to laugh. They came to gawk, and they came to join in. Now, I read an article this past week of a situation in New York City that seemed reminiscent of the Edomites. While walking across the street in the Bronx, a man was struck by a car. He was thrown from the intersection, and he was left badly injured. Bystanders saw what happened, but they didn't take the time to help him, Instead, some of, their took out, some of them took out their phones to record video, while others ran to his body, cleaned out his pockets, took anything of value, and then continued on their way. Now, this isn't the first time that this has happened in the city. On the contrary, it seems to be the norm in our culture as we continue to be corrupted by things like TikTok. Now, with fellow civilians more likely to pick up their phone and video a murder, rape, or a theft than to actually step in and help. 
So truly, our society has descended to behave like Edomites. And from this place of depravity, from this place of destruction, from this place of horror, this psalm is written. Dragging the captives towards Babylon in a chain gang, their cruel masters mock them and they say, sing us one of your songs, minstrels. One of the songs that you just were singing in the palace a month ago. Do you realize how offensive that is? This is like having a murderer kill your child and then demand you sing a nursery rhyme. This is the atrocity of war. And I'm being graphic for good reason. And this is why. Because Christian platitudes are worthless. Do you know what a Christian platitude is? A Christian platitude is a vacant spiritual answer that provides no real hope, no real direction for those who are desiring to live a godly life. A Christian platitude is a pat answer that has a veneer of spirituality, but it's actually worthless. That when someone has experienced true tragedy in their life, the death of a loved one, the murder of a spouse, the rape of a child, the desecration of marriage, the gut-wrenching reality of kidnapping, it does them no good to look at them and say, well, brother, you need to forgive and forget. That has no value to say to someone in the midst of true hardship to just let go and let God. Why? First thing is this, if you're taking notes. What do you need to learn from Psalm 137? Sin is real, and the wake that it leaves is catastrophic. That's the first thing you need to realize. Sin is real, and the wake that it leaves is catastrophic and painful. This is the first lesson we need to learn from imprecatory psalms. That to have emotional turmoil in a sinful world doesn't make you less spiritual. I want to repeat that. To have emotional turmoil in light of a broken world doesn't make you less spiritual. And if you're the kind of person who says, well, I know the world is hard and that's just the way it is, and you feel nothing when you look out on the situation of the world, you're not spiritual, you're desensitized. It should bother your spirit that a man can be robbed while he's waiting for help. You shouldn't just say, well, that's the world today, as some kind of cold, distant emotion. It should boil your blood to hear that while a gunman is executing children inside a classroom, there's a group of police officers who are waiting in the hallway playing on their phones. That should boil your blood. It should cause you to scream to the heavens that the United States aborts on average 600,000 infants a year, which is part of 50 million abortions annually, globally. That should bother you. 
It should disturb you that grooming our children for sexual deviance is a normal part of society now. And if you can hear these things and not be in the slightest bit disturbed, you aren't spiritual, you're numb. Because sin is real. The wake that it leaves is catastrophic and destructive. And to feel the pain of these things reminds us that we yearn for a better place, that this is not our home, that no, we will not sing our songs of praise in the midst of Babylon because we will not be mocked and our God will not be mocked. And so we will willingly feel the pain. We will willingly take the pain because it reminds us that we were not supposed to live in Babylon. We were designed for something greater. Are you guys following me? So the first thing that you learn from imprecatory psalms is that sin is real. And its wake is catastrophic. And the second lesson you learn is this. None of us is truly innocent. Though we are not as bad as we could be or as bad as the next guy. You know, we talk theologically, uh, if you've gone through doctrine with us, about being totally depraved. And total depravity is the idea that human nature is thoroughly, thoroughly corrupt and sinful as a result of the fall. That's what total depravity is in a very simple sense. Human nature is thoroughly corrupt as a result of the fall. Total depravity does not mean utter depravity. Utter depravity means that we are as bad as we could be. Although I am not utterly depraved, I am totally depraved in need of a Savior. You see, we talk a great deal in today's society about justice. Justice is a hot topic, right? You've probably heard churches. Have you heard churches and sermons from some of your favorite podcasts talking about justice and how we need to fight for justice? Yes? Can you raise your hand if you've heard that? It's theologically inaccurate. Because we do not cry out to God for justice. Because if we cry out to God for justice, what would God give us? Death. We do not cry out to God for justice because that would mean that God gives us what we deserve and we are told very clearly the wages of sin is death. And so we do not cry out for justice. The Israelites got justice. They were exiled from their promised land because they broke the covenantal promises of God. They fractured their side of the Mosaic Covenant, and exile was what they deserved. That was justice. Notice that the psalmist does not claim innocence. The psalmist does not point to the faithfulness of the Israelites. Instead, the psalmist claims remembrance. The psalmist doesn't point to the uprightness of the nation or its faithfulness. Instead, the psalmist remembers. He remembers Jerusalem. He remembers Zion. He remembers the promises of God. He remembers the, pre the, the presence of God. The psalmist remembers that God had a promise with Abraham to bless all who blessed them and cursed all who cursed them, which is why he prays what he prays at the end of the psalm, even if it makes us uncomfortable. 
the psalmist recalls that God has plans for Israel to prosper them in Babylon, not to let them get utterly destroyed. And the psalmist remembers the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said that one day Babylon's kids would be dashed against the rocks of the shore. The Israelites were not innocent, but Babylon took great cruel pleasure in carrying out the execution orders, and that didn't make them innocent either. Indeed, they would be held accountable for their own actions, and in the divine chess match of history, which is much beyond our own human capabilities for comprehension, the psalmist realizes God's justice will be distributed across the board for no man is innocent, none is truly good, no, not one. And so what do we learn? We remember, one, the world is afflicted with sin and pain. Two, we are part of the problem, not part of the solution. Which leads us to the third point from imprecatory psalms. Only God can truly be responsible to bring about justice. The third thing you learn from imprecatory psalms is that only God can truly be responsible to bring about justice. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Why? Because only God has sovereignty. Only God has the sovereignty, the omniscience. Only God has the power to actually know what vengeance truly is because vengeance for us is an act, an act of emotional rage, which is really revenge. But for God, vengeance is justice, which is truly giving people what they deserve. I want you to know that God is kind and God is good. And because God is good, listen, if you're zoning out, Zone back in, all right? God is good. And because God is good, the worst possible imaginable thing that God will do, the worst possible imaginable thing that God will do is what is fair. Because God is due, the worst thing he'll do to you, the worst thing he'll do to your enemy, the worst thing that he'll do to anyone is to give them exactly what they deserve. He'll never give them more than that. God will never give you more than you deserve in terms of a punishment. But the problem is this. What man actually deserves is hell. God will never treat an unrepentant sinner worse than that. But God will be fair. And only God can respond to sin with the appropriate response. God is righteous and just. And indeed, he would not be God at all if he were not righteous and just. Since God has revealed himself to his creation as righteous and just, it is necessary that he punish sin and reward righteousness. If men would commit horrible crimes and never pay, or if nations could perpetrate atrocities and never be called to account, then we could rightly conclude that God is not righteous. There comes a point at which not to judge sin is to condone it, and so for these reasons God must judge sin. And so in light of this, 
we take comfort, in a sense, knowing that the psalmist's prayer for justice is not a wrong prayer. It could be It would be wrong for the psalmist to take matters into his own hands, but to pray that God's justice would come to fruition is not a sinful prayer. It's actually a prayer 100% in line with the revealed character of God. That the psalmist wants to see justice. He wants to see an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or in in this case, a son for a son. Which leads us to our final point. A son for a son, or more specifically, a son for many sons, is exactly what God has done in response. There was a man named Jesus who roamed this earth as an exile. He stepped out of the promised land of God, the heavenly promised land of God, to dwell upon this earth. And unlike all the exiles who came before Jesus, from Adam to Babylon, Jesus did nothing to deserve to be displaced. He was actually the only innocent exile who ever lived. The only one who wasn't receiving some form of divine justice. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He was without sin. He came to earth and lived a righteous life. In other words, he did all the right things to love God and love people. But in his exile upon this earth, he was not celebrated as the sinless, righteous one. Instead, he was executed. Hanging his body upon a cross on the hill of Golgotha, his, quote, Babylonian captors said to him, Sing us a song from glory. More precisely, they said, you could save others. Can't you save yourself? If you're truly the son of God, why don't you come down from there? They mocked him in much the same way that the Babylonians mocked the exiles. But Jesus didn't save himself. He refused to play the harp for them, as it were. Instead, he remembered the promises of God, and he believed he could trust his father unto death. He believed what Peter would pen later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so Jesus entrusted his soul to the father, refusing to take matters into his own hands although he could have called down a legion of angels. He said, truly, no man takes my life. I lay it down freely so that I can take it back again. Justice for Jesus would have been acquittal. Justice would have been a crown of gold instead of a crown of thorns. Justice would have been a coronation celebration instead of a flogging, Jesus didn't receive justice. Now, justice for me, justice for you, justice for all of us is death. For the wages of sin is death. Justice for me is condemnation. 
because as Breton explained last week, in sin, my mother conceived me. In other words, I've been sinful since the womb. Justice for me would be separation from God the Father. Justice for me would be held. But Jesus received my justice so I could receive injustice. And injustice isn't always a bad thing because you know what a form of injustice is? Mercy. And so instead of receiving the justice of God, I receive the positive injustice of mercy. Jesus receiving my justice Mercy is what is extended to Jesus, his enemies. As we see in Psalm 2, he invites them to bend the knee and to kiss the ring of the king of kings and to do this and live. But if we refuse, what we can anticipate is not injustice. We can anticipate justice. And it will not be a punishment that we can talk our way out of. See, God gave his only begotten son so that you and I, the enemies of the cross, could become adopted heirs in his family. And so what do we see in Psalm 137? What do we learn from imprecatory psalms? This is what we learn. One, sin is real. It leaves a catastrophic wake. And so practically speaking, you should look out on a broken world and be bothered. Don't grow numb and desensitized because you're so used to seeing it on the news. It should bother you. The second thing is this. None of us is truly innocent. That you can look at the other side of the fence and you can look at this person and that person and you can say that person deserves death but don't believe for a minute that you don't deserve the same thing. That you may not be utterly depraved, but you are scripturally totally depraved, desperate for mercy. That we deserve divine retribution. Three, we saw that only God can actually be responsible to bring about justice, which is why the psalmist doesn't take matters into his own hands. Instead, he prays for it. Why Jesus trusted himself to God. While, why Paul says in Romans to not take revenge, but to leave it to the Lord. And four, we realize that God provided a way out of this justice by offering mercy to his enemies. As evidenced by the son that he gave. So here's the question. What is our response to the atrocities of the world? What is our response to murder? What is our response to rape? What is our response to theft, to extortion, to kidnapping, to abortion, to molestation, and all of the other heinous things that we could have mentioned and have not? What is our response? This is your response, all right? One, allow your spirit to be deeply disturbed by the divine blasphemy of sin. 
Allow your spirit to be deeply disturbed by the divine blasphemy of sin and realize its horror with a fearful expectation of judgment. That's a biblical response. That's a biblical response. Don't be some veneer of religiosity. Embrace it. Your second response is this. Humble yourself and cry out for mercy. Acknowledging that if God should count a man's sin against him, none would stand. I think it says in Lamentations, who are you, O man, to complain when you are punished for your sin? That it is only by the divine mercy of God that we don't reap the real world consequences for our sin on a regular basis. Humble yourself and cry out for mercy. I love how Breton pointed that out last week. We focus so much on God's grace, which we should, but the other side of that coin is mercy. And when we focus on grace, we reflect on God's kindness and love. But when we reflect on his mercy, we reflect on his holiness. And as we've mentioned before, the only attribute of God that is repeated three times is holy. Not loving, 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 or strong, 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 or good, 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 but holy, holy holy and the third response is this we pray that god would bring justice while realizing one if a man repents justice has been given on the cross and two if a man refuses to repent vengeance is mine saith the lord We pray for our enemies to repent because if they repent, that means God's justice has been done on their behalf upon the Son. And if they don't repent, then God will pour his justice out upon them, which is good. I know that's hard to understand. But because God is a good judge, he will judge rightly and fairly. So on this earth, all creation, Paul says, groans for redemption, and we groan with it. But we can also know that sin and the wake that it leaves is temporary, and that God is making all things new. And so let's pray. Father God, we know that these are complicated themes. I pray that we would understand these hard things. That it may be hard to receive them because we have a pop culture understanding of Christianity that's sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. But truly, Lord, we living in America are buffered from the atrocity of sin in so many ways. And so few of us have actually seen horror. But Lord, this world is broken and this world will be purified by fire and that you arise with a tempest before you 
and an all-consuming fire calling to the heavens and the earth to bring forth the quick and the dead that they may hold account for what they've done. We thank you that because of Jesus, if we place our faith in him, throwing ourselves upon him, crying out for mercy, he takes that punishment instead of us. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who has yet to throw themselves at the feet of Jesus, I pray that today would be the day they surrender to Christ and they cry out to you in their heart for salvation. Father God, I pray for those in this room who are on the fence. I pray that you would show them who you are. God, let us learn from your ways and let us trust that you know what you're doing. Let us not take vengeance into our own hands, but let us pray and entrust ourselves to you. In your name, amen.